If you're interested in listening ad-free, go to patreon.com slash the SCP experience. There you can enjoy my ad-free podcast and never have to listen to ads again. That's patreon.com slash the SCP experience. Now time for the story. I stared at the screen over Lopez's shoulder. The room was silent all around me as other security lieutenants watched. The storm was raging over Providence, Rhode Island, the dark clouds blotting out the waning daylight. On the large screen, we could see evidence of the storm as three technicians worked on a piece of complex machinery. The roof had somehow blown off the small building housing the Castro Dunlap Reality Stabilization Field Generator. The three techs were working to repair it as water poured in on them. The field had gone down and now we were waiting to see if they could get it back up. We had the task force waiting in the wings, ready to move at a moment's notice. Things could get very bad without the reality stabilization field. After another five minutes of watching, one of the techs stopped working and looked up at the camera. He raised his radio to his mouth and said, This isn't going to be a quick fix. I don't even know what's wrong with this thing yet. Prepare for the worst. The head of security, Lopez, raised his radio and told the tech that he understood. Then he turned around and looked at the room full of lieutenants. You heard the man, move! We all filed quickly out of the room, heading to the garage. The dozens of armored security officers waiting for us around the trucks had been shooting the shit. But when we came into the garage, walking at a brisk pace, they all straightened up and went silent. I looked at the men around my truck as I walked. Let's go, I said. They all piled into the personnel carrier. The driver, a man named Tullin, put his foot to the pedal as I got into the front passenger seat. The streets of Providence were nearly deserted as the rain came down in sheets. Since we didn't know yet where or even if an anomaly would occur, we headed to our designated area to await further instructions. We'd never had the reality stabilization field go down for so long, so we didn't know what would happen. But my gut was telling me there would be a manifestation, and within minutes, I was proved right. We were crossing over the Point Street Bridge when the call came through on the radio. Manifestation detected, Lopez said from headquarters. Centered on Hope Street and Waterman. He didn't have to say more. We all knew what to do. You get that? I asked the driver. In answer, he nodded and put his foot down, speeding us along. We took a left on Brook Street and headed up toward Waterman. I gazed out the windshield, looking for the edges of the manifestation. It was never the same size twice. Most often, it was fairly small, only covering a few city blocks. But I had no idea if it would be larger this time since we'd been so successful in preventing it until now. As we approached Waterman, we suddenly passed out of the rain and into a dry patch of road. The stars were brilliant above us, like there was a hole in the storm that we'd just driven into. But I knew that wasn't the case. Tullin slowed down. We were in the manifestation, but I had seen no evidence of it from the outside. Luckily, Lopez and the rest of the team back at headquarters were monitoring it with sophisticated equipment that was far beyond my pay grade. The buildings on both sides of the road were suddenly old and run down. They looked as if they'd been built in the early 1800s. 
We stopped at the Waterman and Brook intersection, looking around as rainwater dripped off the truck. The streets were empty. The few parked cars around had been transformed into old Ford Model Ts. I also spotted a couple of Hudsons and Studebakers. Hope Street was to our right, but I didn't see any activity down there, so I told Tullin to keep going. We stopped at the next intersection, Angel Street. I spotted a cloaked figure standing in the middle of the road, facing an old tenement building. There, I said. Tullin turned the truck and parked about 70 yards from the figure. I grabbed my M4 carbine as I jumped out of the cab. I went around to the back and directed three of my eight-man team to follow me, while the others created a perimeter around the truck to watch for hostiles. We moved toward the robed figure, who stood facing the tenement. But now, its arms were held out at its sides. I couldn't see any of its features thanks to the cloak, not even its hands. We approached with caution. We weren't going to engage unless we had to. Our job was to keep an eye on anomalous entities to ensure they didn't hurt any people inside the manifestation zone. So we stopped a good 20 yards away from the figure and stood ready. I knew that Tullin, back at the truck, would be radioing in to tell HQ about our find. Still, I didn't like the feeling I got as we approached the figure. Maybe because I'd read reports of these things showing up just before massive entities appeared. I looked around, wondering how long it would be before backup arrived. And as I looked back, I saw that the figure had turned toward us. Its face was still shrouded in blackness, which made it impossible to see any features. All at once, six tentacles snaked out from the darkness under the hood, writhing insanely as if to warn us off. The creature then lifted a foot off the ground as larger tentacles appeared under the hem of the cloak. These propelled the creature into the tenement house, blasting it through the front door. Screams immediately came from inside the structure. I didn't have to tell my men to move. We all ran into the three-story building without hesitation. We took an immediate right once inside the house, seeing the door to that apartment had been smashed open. Inside, the tentacled creature had hold of a man in his late 30s. Tentacles stretched from the cloak's arms and wrapped around the man's body. The ones from its hood had the man by his head. One tentacle was shoved down the man's throat. Huddled in the corner was a woman with two young children. They screamed at the hellish sight before them. I stepped up to the creature and put the barrel of my gun to what I hoped was its head. I pulled the trigger, blasting dark goo all over the wall behind it. This only seemed to anger the thing, causing it to snap the man's neck before hurtling him across the room. I opened fire, making sure I wouldn't hit the people in the corner. Two of my men did the same. The creature went down this time, leaking the strange dark green goo all over the floor. Come on! I called to the woman. Move! She grabbed her two children, a girl and a boy, by the arms and pulled them toward us. She glanced over at the man, her husband, I guessed, who was in a heap near a chair on the other side of the room. Tears filled her eyes as she moved through the door and out of the apartment. As we stepped outside into the night, the sound of gunfire caught my attention. The members of my team at the truck were firing at something I could not yet see, as it was around the corner and blocked by a building. But it soon came into view, massive and lumbering quickly toward my men. It was difficult to look at because it was constantly changing shape, 
The only things that remained somewhat the same were the five large tentacles it used to propel itself forward. The rest of its body shifted, combining hideous and impossible features that made the mind rebel. Such a thing defied logic and the physics of the known universe. It crashed down on my men in the truck. Several elongated, teeth-filled mouths emerged to consume my men. I stared in disbelief. My thoughts a jumbled blur. I felt a crack forming in my mind, the unreality of the situation squirming its way into my rational thoughts, poisoning them against me. I could see the chasm of insanity rushing at me, the point of no return quickly approaching. It was the little girl's scream that brought me out of it. I turned and looked at the woman. She was still clutching the children's arms, staring in stark terror at the creature 70 yards distant. I then looked around at my men, who were all frozen in terror. Now that I was no longer looking at the creature, the spell seemed to have broken. Stepping over to the nearest man, Dietrich, I moved into his line of sight, blocking his view. Then I smacked him on his helmet. His eyes focused on me and he shook his head. Don't look, I said, turning him around. Dietrich and I quickly broke the trance of the others and got them moving down the street. We went down Angel and came to Brown Street. Ahead and to the left were more of the cloaked figures. We had no choice but to turn right, moving down Brown. The ground was shaking now, the vibrations coming from somewhere behind us. I could tell that whatever was shaking the ground was larger than the creature I'd seen devouring my men. I dared not look back at it, although I could feel it looming over the city like a moving skyscraper. We ran down the road, taking a left on Meeting Street. It seemed like the cloaked figures were closing in on us. I considered hunkering down in a house, but I knew that no building, no matter how secure, would keep these creatures out. Still running, we approached the intersection of Meeting and Prospect Streets and on the corner to our left stood a gaunt, frantic man, waving to us. Over here, he called. There were figures further down the street and some approaching behind us. We had no choice but to hide and try to defend ourselves as best we could. When it was clear that we were heading toward the man, he ran into a house on the corner and held the door open for us. It was a rectangular, two-story structure with several windows on all sides. Too many windows for my liking. We poured through the door and into the main room. The man shut and locked the door behind us. He wore a gray suit from a previous century. As he turned to address us, I realized I recognized him. He was thin and pale, with a long face and a small, pursed mouth. His brown hair was cut short and parted on the left. His prominent nose jutted from his face under dark, humorless eyes. He studied the seven of us with those eyes for a long moment before going to the window to look out. I cannot stop it, he whispered, just loud enough for me to hear. Can't stop what? I asked. He winced as if struck, then turned around. He only met my eyes for a moment, then directed them to the floor. I am unsure if I can protect you, he said. They may still come for you. It's Howard, right? I asked. His brows furrowed. How did you know that? Your work is well known where I come from, I said. Well known for destroying the world, he snapped, pointing at the door. They are exactly as I saw them in my nightmares. I refrained from describing them for the very reason that I thought it would give them power. And now, here we are. Our two worlds are leaking into each other because I gave these gods power. The ground rumbled as if in assent to his declaration. Howard Lovecraft turned back and looked out the window. 
Then he jumped away from it, screaming, Get down! Something smashed into the house. The walls cracked near the ceiling as the entire structure shook. I shoved the mother and her children deeper into the house, finding the staircase and putting them into the storage area underneath it. The sound of groaning and cracking became deafening. The top floor of the house was ripped away in a storm of debris, exposing the entire first floor. Towering over the house, impossibly large, was a beast I'd seen many drawings of. Its numerous reptilian eyes stared down at us over a writhing mass of tentacles that made up the lower half of its head. Its massive body was humanoid to a point, with two arms and two legs. But its greenish skin seemed to be a mixture of scales and the skin of a squid. One of its claw-tipped hands held the top half of the house like it was a toy, then it released it, letting that portion of the house fall down to the street at its feet. It leaned down, red-tinted eyes the size of cars gazing down on us. My team and I were kneeling just outside the storage area door, pointing our weapons up at the thing. Not that they would do much good. In my rush to get the woman and her children to a relatively safe place, I'd lost track of Lovecraft. But as the creature reached down toward us, the gaunt man suddenly appeared, running up to stand in front of us and face the creature. The monster stopped, its huge, grotesque hand hovering over the house. Lovecraft seemed to be communicating with the creature, although he spoke no words. Since it was leaning down, I could see the folded, leathery wings that sprouted from its back. It could kill us at any moment, simply crush us with its hand, but it didn't. It released a piercing, guttural cry that seemed to shake my entire skeleton. I cried out as maddening visions swept through my brain. Visions of a dimension where the incomprehensible was commonplace and sanity was infeasible. For a few long moments, I contemplated sticking the M4 in my mouth and pulling the trigger just to stop the thoughts. But the cry ended and my mind came back to me. I only found out later that everyone else with me experienced something similar. Everyone except Lovecraft. He seemed unfazed by the cry. He remained standing in front of us as the unholy creature straightened up. Then, without warning, it turned to fog. But it wasn't just the creature that turned to fog. Lovecraft did, too. A fog that dissipated quickly. What remained of his house transformed back into its modern version, and the sky was suddenly full of clouds and falling rain. The manifestation was over. Just like that, it was over. We got the woman and her children to safety and gave them amnestics. I already knew what the cover story would be. Freak storm hits Providence, killing dozens and doing millions of dollars in property damage. When I finally got back to headquarters with what was left of my men, I found out that the technicians had fixed the Castro Dunlap Reality Stabilization Field Generator, which was what had ended the manifestation. But in the days and weeks that followed, I could think of little else but Lovecraft. He was somehow stuck in a hell of his own creation. Or maybe these creatures were not of his creation. Maybe they had existed all along, and he'd just been the one to see them through the thin veil of reality that held our worlds apart. Either way, I felt sorry for the man. I owed him my life. And even though I would have liked to thank him for saving us that night, I hoped I would never get the chance. SCP-4315 is a recurring temporary event during which portions of an extra-dimensional space interact with baseline reality 
solely occurring in Providence, Rhode Island. During an SCP-4315 manifestation, SCP-4315-1 appears to overlay small sections of the current Providence, causing individuals and entities to sometimes cross from one to the other. When the temporary event ceases, the outer boundaries of SCP-4315-1 dissolve into dense fogs, with subjects attempting to enter said fog disappearing. SCP-4315-1's primary anomalous effect, aside from its transdimensional status, is the sudden manifestation of powerful and hostile entities, deemed SCP-4315-2. These entities are extremely similar in appearance to those in the fictional works of H.P. Lovecraft. The entities are theorized to be the cause of SCP-4315-1's destruction. Instances of SCP-4315-2 are known to eventually attempt to vacate the manifestation and enter into baseline reality. Upon exiting the manifestation, said instance is fully capable of harming any and all organic and non-organic material using a variety of methods. The primary containment method is to prevent these manifestations from happening. Secondary containment is to prevent these entities from escaping into baseline reality by any means necessary. <laughs>